This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Fascinating situation, uh, and that we're asking this question on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, should Hamilton, should a Hamilton judge be wearing a Trump hat to court? Uh, or any hat, for that matter. Feel free to offer your opinion. Uh, Corinne already has. Uh, says, I think it's his personal life. That'd be fine, but certainly not in court. Sam writes, no, not on the job. Feel free to offer your opinion. Facebook and Twitter, and of course, you can send me a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. Uh, how do you feel about this? Let's ask Ari Goldkind. He is a Toronto defense lawyer and uh, has his own opinion on uh, how this should be handled and is with us now. Hello, Ari. How are you today? Great to be on with you, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate that. So what are your thoughts when you hear this story? Well, twofold. Let's compliment the two people whose opinions you just uh, put on the air because they're absolutely right. It's his personal life. He has every right to express himself in his personal life, but it shouldn't be brought into court. So on the left hand, the critics are right that he shouldn't have come into court with it. On the right hand, and I mean no pun intended, blue, Mm. red, right, and left, Mm. if he had come in wearing a Hillary Clinton, I'm with her shirt, there'd be no outrage today. It would go in line with politically correct Canada and all the things you're allowed to think. So even though the critics are right that he should not be wearing anything political in the courtroom, this is a sanctimonious opportunity for many to piggyback on anti-Trump rhetoric right now, and they're couching it in some legal thing. This judge knows he made a mistake. He won't do it again. It's a judicial error, but at the end of the day, no judge should wear anything. So if he was wearing something supporting Hillary, you don't think there'd be the backlash that we're seeing now? Not in one trillion years, maybe a bajillion years. I'm not sure how to measure that, but it would be absolutely in line with what most lawyers feel the political order in Justin Trudeau's Canada, everybody would think, you know, he's with her and he's sensitive and he's this. It, this is about Trump backlash, period. But I say, Scott, even though I feel that way and I would take that to the bank, it is absolutely true that he should not be walking into a courtroom wearing that hat. Uh, on that point, that he should not be wearing anything, and, I, and, 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 and we'll talk about that in a sec, but on that point, why are you so convinced that if it was uh, a Hillary or a, or a Democratic supporting shirt of some sense, that people wouldn't say the same thing? That, you know, it doesn't matter what your hat says, you shouldn't be wearing it, or what your shirt says. Well, it, in, in our culture and our political culture, which is what Trump has obviously struck a nerve on, if you like Hillary Clinton... If you like Justin Trudeau and you say that publicly, you are going to do very well for yourself in the courtroom of public opinion. I don't mean in the courtroom, I mean public opinion. If you say there are issues that Trump talks about that resonates, or you don't think we live in a kumbaya world, which is what Hillary Clinton does to many people, even though she and Trump on certain policies aren't that far off, this is really about politics. We're playing politics in the courtroom. The judge's mistake is that he played politics in the courtroom. And quite frankly, Scott, as strongly as I feel on this issue, I think the judge was colossally idiotic. And what was idiotic about it is something that most people haven't picked up on, which is he said it's a historic occasion, and that's why he's wearing the hat. What's historic about another rich white guy becoming president? If it was Clinton, Hillary Clinton, that's historic. Obama, that's historic. This judge was just off his rocker that day, and he deserves a lot of the scorn he's getting. I just don't like the sanctimoniousness where people would pretend they'd be outraged if he was wearing an I'm with her shirt. Uh, Did he say why it was a historic day? No, he didn't really go that far. And, and, you know, I, I think you and a lot of your listeners will know the term chutzpah. It is so stupid because you have to remember, everybody listening to this, if any of your listeners walked into a courtroom and had their hands in their pocket or had a hat on their head, they'd be screamed at by the judge that they're offending decorum. This guy in full robes, the red sash, the whole regalia, comes in wearing this red hat on his head. That in and of itself is stupid. And then he puts it on the judge's desk facing the crowd. So if you're a person who really doesn't like Trump, but you're, you know, a woman in a sex assault case or something like that, and that hat's staring at you, you're probably going to think, am I going to get a fair shake from this idiot? I don't know why this judge would take his reputation unless he's going to step down and run for office, 
which I wouldn't put him past them at this point. I'm sure the Conservative Party is hiring. This is just such a colossal, stupid mistake that it deserves censure by the Judicial Council. But I think we need to keep the perspective, as I've added here, which this has a lot to do with how we're allowed to think in Canada and how we're not. What about the cases that he would have been presiding over that day? I mean, if you're the defense, if you're the lawyer, wouldn't you say, hey, this is inappropriate and use this to, to, to help your case in some way? I would. And what's really interesting and how I got involved in doing a lot on this story, because I'm in Toronto, but this is in Hamilton, obviously, is a lot of lawyers in Hamilton who appear before him regularly and this is on the record, are afraid to take him on or were afraid to say something to him that day. I believe one did, but, you know, the last time I checked, Scott, I'm a Toronto criminal defense lawyer, the whole purpose of our job is to take on authority, to take on power, to not be cowardly, to not be scared or bearing our tail. So as far as I'm concerned, if I was in the courtroom that day and I saw it, no matter what my politics were, it's a defense lawyer's job to take on the machine. Uh, Do we know much about this judge at this point? Apparently, from what I understand, well-respected. I have not heard a peep in the legal community that up until this point, he's one of these judges that people rail upon. Uh, He's certainly not in the youthful days of his career. But I, I just don't understand this thinking. And what a shame to do, if you're a judge of good repute, to come in and make this your legacy. My sense is he wanted to trend on anti-social media or impress his grandkids or step down and run to be uh, somebody's running mate in the Conservative Party. It's just so stupid, Scott. I can't imagine it. You're not even allowed to chew gum in a courtroom, and he comes in and does this. Well, I remember hearing of cases where judges have reprimanded people that are before him or her because of the way they are dressed or what they yeah. ha- the hats dressed, that they would have on chewing, their head. Dressed, chewing gum, as a lawyer having your hand in your pocket, like... Don't get me wrong, I'm not a big fan of being, you know, yeah. judges yelling at people in a disrespectful way. But what he did was also disrespectful to the process, because on a higher level, let's leave the Trump and Clinton thing. There is in Canada, Scott, and you know this, a separation, for lack of a better term, between church and state. It's not like when we turn on our TVs and see these U.S. judge elections, where each, each judge tries to prove he's tougher on crime and more pro-gun than the next. We're not supposed to know their personal beliefs, Mm. or the politics. That's why we believe in Canada people theoretically get a fair shake. Now, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I can tell you that's not necessarily the case, but it's at least what we want the public to think. Does it matter what he was wearing? In this case, it was a hat you were talking about, an I'm with her shirt, meaning Hillary. Does it matter if it was a shirt or a hat? No, it doesn't. And just to stretch this, because I think a lot of your listeners would be familiar with the Black Lives Matter movement. It would be no different if he came in with a Black Lives Matter pin on his lapel or if he came in with a Blue Lives Matter, which represents support for the police. None of those things would have any place in a courtroom because the one thing you don't want to do is flash some sign that you are not neutral. My liking of our criminal justice system is the thought, and again, I can tell you, Scott, on another segment on another day, nobody's really neutral but at least the perception that the judge hearing your case is hearing it from a blank slate, that's very important if you're a person in the courtroom before that judge. Hamilton judge, what if he was wearing a Hamilton Tiger Cat hat, championship weekend, that sort of thing? I think at the end of the day that probably shouldn't be done, but I will tell you this. If any lawyer or one of your counselors there who's moaning and groaning about this complained about that, I think they're a party pooper and a spoil sport. I think there's something cute about that. And at the end of the day, just because they're a judge, they're allowed to be human. If you're in Toronto and, God forbid, the Leafs win a Stanley Cup, which we both know is never going to happen, and a judge came in with a Stanley Cup the next day and got in trouble for it, you know, I think at some point we need to stop treating uh, you know, everything with a hammer and trying to smash it in a nail. It would be no big deal to me. Have you heard of anything like this happening? Have you heard this happening in the United States at all? I have in the United States where a couple judges, if my memory serves, or a, some, somebody in some state down there came in with a Blue Lives uh, Matter pin. And that was in the throes of the Dallas shootings, of the police being shot, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, in the States, it's a very different fish. There are federal appointees, but there it's really more of an election process for judges. 
based on how tough on crime you are. The one thing I like about in Canada, which is going to change, Scott, there's no doubt that our courts are going to be more responsive, responsive to what I call anti-social media, is that for now we have brave judges who could not care less theoretically what the politics or hashtags of the day are. If I'm a litigant walking into a courtroom and I see a judge wearing something that is against or in contrast to the case I'm advancing, I would think, well, why am I even in a neutral courtroom? I might as well just go to Parliament. Hmm. How do you think this judge is feeling today? You know, it's a great question, Scott. I would love to call him and ask him. And I'm, you know, one of the we tried. I, 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 <laughs> I was just going to say, one of these things is these judges live in such an ivory tower fiefdom where they're told to uh, be quiet, they can't answer, they do all their talking in the courtroom. He really should be issuing a public statement, in my view. It won't be done, Scott. It will not be done. But either apologizing for it, or in our society where we fake and make people give forced fake apologies. Let him stand by what he did. Let him come into a courtroom this morning. It's Monday. Courts are open. And if he feels that what he did is right, let him stand on his own two feet or be hoisted on his own petard. My sense is this has gone wider than he thought it was, but there's no way when he came in that courtroom that day do I think for a second he didn't think it would create a brouhaha. What I don't like is a city councillor there and a bunch of lawyers all going bananas as if it means he's a crooked human being or should be withdrawn from the bench. I think that's as demeaning or stupid as what the judge did. So what should uh, what should the recourse be here? There should be two things. One, assuming this judge is a good judge, and this is important because I hate forced apologies. When you say something politically incorrect and you're a principal of a school and you're forced to apologize to keep your job because you offended somebody, I hate that. But if he's a judge, you would think he would have sober second thought and say, upon reflection, I shouldn't have done it. I made a mistake. I'd like to see two things. Because of the attention of this case, he issues a sincere apology, essentially saying it was stupid. I don't want it to be my legacy. Number two, the Judicial Council, rather than some kangaroo court meeting behind closed doors, just issues a very short release saying Judge Sable aired. Uh, we have advised him of that. He has admitted it. The case is closed. It will not happen again. Let it be a lesson. End of story. And then anti-social media, which is always a Twitter, pun intended, can calm down and move on to the next issue tomorrow to be outraged about. Uh, will there be a change in protocol here as a result of this? It, will there now be a memo going out to all judges? Just in case you don't know, here's the dress code. You know, I, to me, that would almost be insulting to judges, because if I walked through the courthouse I'm in right now, as I talk to you and walked into the courtroom and took a poll of 32 judges, maybe 25 who I don't even agree with, all 32, and I've made that number up, would say what the judge did is stupid. And not only that, they know that the code, the rules in the Ontario Judicial Code, is that you don't come into court doing anything or saying anything that would, A, bring the administration of justice into disrepute, and B, more importantly, wear or do or say anything that would suggest you may have a horse in the race uh, or some bias to some group in your court. No judge needs to be told this. I don't want this to turn into ki uh, a kindergarten lesson. You brought up the politics involved in this, and we're certainly seeing that creep across the border uh, post-election. Uh, this is sort of off-topic. Your thoughts on the protests that are going on, how, do, how does the United States and North America and the rest of the world move forward for, on this? In my opinion, changing the topic, and you know, I wasn't expecting to be asked this, but I'll lay it out with you as I have all week. The protests are ridiculous. I get that you have a right to protest. They are totally un-American. And what I think is uh, the textbook definition of hypocrisy is when Trump said, I'm going to protest if I don't win, the election is rigged, and everybody on mainstream media said, what a child, what a petulant, non-patriotic American. All of a sudden now, where these protesters, and there's hundreds of them or thousands of them or whatever it is, all of a sudden now, they're in the right when they're protesting their president. If Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama can say, give them a chance, let them govern until everybody goes bananas, that's good enough for me. And remember, what would all of these professional or very, very far-left protesters be saying today if 
uh, Clinton had won, and all of Trump's lunatic NRA duck dynasty, we all love guns, we all hate abortion, we all hate this, we all hate that, we're doing the same. The left would be absolutely pillaring them. I'm not a fan of hypocrisy. Good point. Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, talking about the Hamilton judge uh, wearing a Trump hat into the courtroom. Ari, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've had this discussion several times on this show and uh, over the years. Are, are our kids over-medicated? A new study says that Canadian children now take far more prescribed mood-altering du- uh, drugs than in the past. Uh, antipsychotic dispensing to Canadian children and youth increased 33% over a four-year period. Uh, rate for antidepressants jumped 63%. Uh, just some of the numbers coming out of this study. To talk more of this, Dr. Mina Trados uh, is with us. Uh, lead author of the report, Research Associate, Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, Assistant Professor uh, Leslie Dan, fa- uh, uh, Faculty of Pharmacy, University of Toronto, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Doctor. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate this. Uh, is it easier to drug than to counsel kids? Well, you know, I think that's a it's a that's a pretty loaded question. Uh, I think what we tried to look at is what's what's the trend happening when it comes to the number of prescriptions that are going out, uh, and and you know, fortunately or unfortunately, kind of saw that the numbers were going up, which may raise some questions related to what you're asking. You know, in the sense that is this a good news story or a bad news story? Is the good news that you know more children are getting care? Um, are we catching these indications for mental health in children earlier? You know, there's some work out there that's cited that, you know, we're catching it too late, especially in adolescence. The bad news is, and maybe something that you're kind of hinting towards, is that are we using too many medications and is it proper what we're doing? So how do we explain this? You know, I think what we, what we have to do is sort of explore this trend a little bit more uh, and look at why specifically, you know, one thing that the paper that we did looked at is across different provinces, we actually saw different rates and we saw that the prescription rates were really changing uh, you know, uh, which medications are using and how much of the medications are using. And so that sort of gives us a hint that perhaps we can look at each province and see how they're dealing with these issues. And this may actually shed a little bit more light on uh, what's actually occurring out there. And, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the things that came out of this paper are really a lot more questions um, that, that we, you know, we, we really do need to address now. How do you explain the difference between provinces? Should it be that different? You know, that, that's sort of the interesting thing is that when it comes to medications and the way that they're dispensed in pharmacies and how they're paid for by private plans and public plans or whatever it may be, uh, there shouldn't be any difference. But we did see differences, which means that the provinces are handling them differently. And I think a lot of things that could relate to access to psychiatrists, access to care, um, how often we're actually treating these uh, earlier, are they catching them within the school systems? I think that's sort of where the next questions need to be. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that these medications are only part of a treatment plan uh, that has been found to be useful. So you have to have pharmacological or drug treatment, and you have to have non-pharmacological or therapies along with each other. So are there more kids with these sorts of disorders now than there were 20 years ago, or are we just discovering more? Are we just reporting more? Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's sort of the interesting question. Uh, we, we from this work couldn't answer that, but we do know that we're using more medications. And I guess the next question will be, how much of it is appropriate and which one isn't? You know, there's a few hypotheses that are really going on out there. And I think one of the major ones is that, you know, there's this something called indication creep, which is this idea that as these medications were first introduced, so let's take antidepressants, for example. When they were first introduced, they were only used or tested for depression. But then more evidence came out that we can use them in such things as anxiety. We can use them as augmentation with other mental health disorders. So what we're starting to see is that they're being used in, in different types of array. Now, in children, we're starting to see more and more children being using this for not just depression, but they're using them for anxiety disorders, and they're using them alongside uh, for kids with ADHD. And so, you know, the next round, which wasn't answered in this paper, would probably explore what's actually happening and who's using them. Uh, Considering what you're talking about and information we've had in the past about doctors over-prescribing all medications, I mean, there's lots of discussion around antibiotics and and how much, uh, uh, you know, doctors are over-prescribing these drugs just to keep patients happy and and move them out the door, so to speak, Uh, and, of course, the ramifications of that. Are you concerned about that here? 
You know, I think it should always be a concern when we see any medication use rising. Uh, but I think when it comes to mental health specifically, appropriateness becomes really important. We do know that there's two sides of this story, right? There's that side where mental health goes under the radar. There's populations and stigmas associated with it. So we, we, and, you know, these medications do help and they do work when used appropriately. So, you know, we do want to present both sides of this. And unfortunately from this work, we can't really answer that. Uh, but we do know that, you know, the, the medication needs to be used with other types of therapy. And, and it has to be used alongside uh, by professionals as well. We say, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about anecdotal stuff and, and things that people say uh, are we're drugging instead of parenting. We're just doing this to keep them quiet. I mean, is that a valid argument? Is that a valid statement? You know, I think a lot of people say that, you know, the, some of this work and when you talk about inappropriate use, there are other things like antibiotics we know because we've looked at how they're being used and they're using too much. We also looked at antipsychotics in elderly patients uh, and we saw that in some cases they're being used too much. I think that this area hasn't been studied as often uh, and I think the reason is that we were just starting to accept the fact that we needed to treat some kids with these, with these issues. I think it should always be of concern if you're, you're, you're treating a patient with medications but there's no follow-up treatment. There's no follow-ups, there's no therapy. I think that on its own is probably a red flag that there needs to be better care. Um, you know, if they're being cared for by a professional, someone who's a psychiatrist or trained in mental health, especially specializing in children, that's a really good sign. And I, and I, and I think that those discussions need to be uh, balanced, you know, between the benefit of the medications and the risk of those medications. On that note, speaking of follow-up, when do you stop prescribing these? I mean, if you've got young kids that are seven, eight, I don't know what, how, how old they are when they're started to, to be prescribed these drugs, but if you're getting kids that are that old that are being prescribed drugs, when does this stop? I mean, does this continue through adolescence? Does it continue into adulthood? I mean, what's the long-term effects of this? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question because, you know, one thing we have to be clear about is that most of these medications are actually being used in adolescence. Uh, we didn't report that in this paper, but in most common indications and the way these medications are often used is more in the adolescent period. Uh, our numbers looked at anyone under the age of 18, uh, and so we're seeing that increased use. But, you know, there is a really interesting question, especially related around ADHD, of what happens in that transition period? And there's more attention being given to as children uh, grow up and become adults, are we supposed to stop and reset that? Because, you know, you know, there isn't really much evidence on that transition period and, and really something important that we should be thinking about. Uh, and how does it affect, the, how does it affect, affect an adolescent brain as they're growing? Yeah, I think we've generally seen that, you know, these medications for kids that really need them, especially in adolescence periods, work. You know, we, 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 can't, we can't downplay how important these medications are, mm -hmm. uh, especially in things like you know, depression and, and, and ADHD. And there is a lot of evidence to support that when they're used properly with proper care, we do see a better improvement in quality of life and better outcomes. So, you know, it's not that we're just using these medications. They have been tested in a lot of indications. But, you know, appropriateness becomes the real important question that will come out of our work. Uh, you can understand why people may be concerned about this. I mean, the, the thing that we just brought up in, uh, in regard to antibiotics and how they were overprescribed. Uh, last week, there's a, reports coming out how there's an opioid crisis in uh, Canada because, again, they were all prescribed with the best intentions, and now look what's happened. Are we heading down that same path? You know, I, I think it's a little bit too early to see, but, you know, the, the, in this day and age where we have better access to data and people have the opportunity to do the work that we're doing, I think these sort of studies come out and say, okay, it's time for us to take a step back and really assess that. And that's what we're calling for from our work to say, you know, some important questions. Are they appropriate? What are we seeing the benefit and versus the risk? Um, and, you know, this is a really good opportunity to kind of mention that, that, that patients should always not just take any prescription. They should have the conversations with their physicians. They should have the conversations with their pharmacists. And they should ask questions that are important about why they should be taking their medication. And that, that should be a, across all different medications, and in this class included. Uh, there, there's all sorts of advertising and this sort of thing going on. I mean, all you have to do is watch any of the cable channels. And uh, if you've got this, that, or the other, you should be taking this. What's Big Pharma's role in all of this? Um, is it too much information for the consumer? Is it not enough edu uh, education for the consumer? Uh, what's their responsibility in all of this? Yeah, I think so. You know, their responsibility is a bit of a balancing act. They are private entities and, and, and they are trying to sell medications, but at the same time, they are really highly regulated. Uh, you know, they, they have to meet approvals to get a medication on market. They have to meet certain requirements and how they advertise, specifically in Canada. 
you know, in Canada, we have a little bit tighter requirements on how drug companies are allowed to market to the public. They can't, you know, that's not as uh, as loose criteria as it is in, in our, our neighbors down to the south. Um, I think it's also really important to remember uh, what a lot of these drugs that we saw the highest climate are now drugs that are considered generic. So that means that their brand company is no longer interested in pushing their use. Uh, but we're still seeing that climb. So I don't think that all the blame can really be pointed in that direction because a lot of the drugs, especially the most commonly used drugs, have been generic for years. Um, so how do we explain the rise in, do you think it's the rise, is this about the rise in the, in, in the prescription and the administering of these drugs? Is it a rise in the problem and these kids are just being treated, are more finally being diagnosed? Like you said, is this a good or a bad news story? Yeah, I think, you know, if, you, if you're really going to, if you want to press me for an answer, I think that the real thing there is that I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I think that there is better attention. Uh, there's improvement in the stigmas of people being treated for mental health disorders. People are, you know, talking about these issues. And so, you know, it, it's, it's become a little bit more common to seek help uh, for these and to know that there might be an issue there. At the same time, I do think that there's other studies that have suggested that perhaps people are just getting medication as the easy solution to it, and mm-hmm. we're not investing enough in therapies and follow-ups and things that are really important to see that these patients don't need to be on these medications long-term, that they are seeing the maximal benefit of using the medications and therapy together. So, you know, I, I, if we had to, and we discussed this in the paper, I think it's really a little bit of both that we're seeing going on. I remember, a, you know, a psychiatrist saying to me at one point that, you know, there's some patients that will just come in and, you know, want the prescription refilled and, and don't even come in for a session or, or will give you a hard time if they're trying to get a, a you know, a session or you're, the doctor's demanding one and they just want the prescription uh, changed or filled. Is the attitude on all of this changing? Are we, are we looking at this as the silver bullet or are we starting to question this? You know, so I'm also a pharmacist and, I, and a lot of times in the pharmacies I see a lot of patients coming in to fill their first ever prescription for these And so anecdotally, what I can tell you from my experience is that patients are cautious and they're really worried uh, about taking medications. And I I think those days and stories of people taking medications lightly, Mm -hmm. especially with all the things we've seen, um, has changed. And I think those conversations are happening. And so, you know, one thing that sort of bothers me sometimes is when people really might need these medications and might need the help, but they're so scared of taking these medications that Mm -hmm. they, they stop. At the same time, you know, you, you are right. There are some patients out there who just take these without thinking about the cons or realizing that these medications do have side effects and maybe you need to have other therapies alongside. So really that balance is, is really important. And, and, and I'm a very strong proponent of ask as many questions as you need, make sure that you talk to everyone that you can, and really make a well-informed decision about how to really approach that. But How, how would you tell if a kid is... Uh, you know, if a kid is just rambunctious, if a kid it lacks focus, or a kid actually does have some sort of imbalance that needs to be treated with a medication, um, h- how do you h- how do you arrive at that? You know, I, I think there there needs to be sort of a, a group coming together that includes the child themselves. I think that the parents have to be involved, but I also think that professionals have to be part of that conversation and people who specialize in this kind of care. Um, you know, one thing that we've seen in other drug classes and, and, and we've seen it in other things like ADHD, for example, is that a lot of these prescriptions are coming from family doctors who are the first line into the healthcare system. But we're not seeing the second step uh, going to see psychiatrists, for example, or pedi- pediatricians who specialize in this. And I think that that's probably uh, an area that probably needs a little bit more attention. And so one next question that came out of this work is who's prescribing most of these um, and are people seeing psychiatrists? And, I, and, and to answer your question about what needs to actually happen, I think that being able to tell if someone is rambunctious or being able to see if it's becoming an indication that needs therapies is really why we have professionals and why we work closely with them, right? And, you know, using those systems and being able to ask those questions is, again, a very important part of this whole decision and journey within mental health. You talk about this being a multi-pronged approach. Should anyone who's on these sort of drugs be going through, can you make a blanket statement that everyone who's on these or kids that are on these should be attending counseling as well? Yeah, so that's straight from the Canadian guidelines that all, you know, for all indications across the board that these should be prescribed by a specialist, uh, or at least they have some sort of mental health help when possible. You know, some GPs actually specialize in mental health as well. Mm -hmm. So I think across the board, we know that medications along with what we refer to as non-pharmacological or just non-drug therapies 
uh, are used in combination and been, and have been shown time and time again to be way better than just drugs alone. What about side effects? We touched on this a bit earlier. Um, What about side effects and the fact that you are giving people that are so young these medications and their body is still growing, worried that their body becomes dependent on these and will, you know, it be more difficult to be weaned off them? Yeah, so that's a a really important point. I'm really glad that you brought that up. So these medications are, are, you know, they're generally safe, but they do have side effects. And uh, and that conversation, again, is something to be had with the pharmacist. And, and there's really three important points to remember. One, when starting these medications, don't ever stop taking them suddenly, especially some of the antidepressants. Uh, that could be a really dangerous thing to do. Um, and it's called, you know, even when you're transitioning between medications, you really need to be talking to your doctor and pharmacist about how to do that. Um, they're not, like, addictive in any sense, but at the same time, we need to taper them off and bring people off them. The second thing is that both classes are associated with different side effects. They can range from things like dizziness or somnolence and feeling tired to weight gain. Uh, and in very rare cases, they can actually cause some issues with the heart. So I think having those assessments means that you have to be seeing a doctor to better understand that. Um, and so it really comes down to having fair conversations, understanding that information, and being followed up by uh, you know, whoever prescribed it for you. Uh, do you think this is a generational thing? Uh, will we have a better handle on it uh, 10, 15 years from now? Yeah, I think we're getting better attention on mental health. I think it's becoming less of a stigma. There's been a lot of campaigns and a lot of discussions about how these are very important things to deal with. And I think those are all very positive things. Um, You know, I'd hate to see a a huge pushback on medications to the point where no one wants to be treated, you know, and that's something that I fear. uh, Because, you know, there are situations where we need to start people on medications and then start the therapy as well at the same time. And it's been shown that together they become... Uh, they, they, they really do well, and then we can taper people off the medications as they, as they get better. Um, you know, every case is a little bit different, and so seeing what happens into the future with the generations will, I think, be as important as we are having these conversations and really talking about it, and people like you bringing attention to these issues uh, about why mental health is important and balancing between getting those medications and getting treatment. Dr. Mina Tadros has been with us, lead author of the report, Research Associate, Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, Assistant Professor Leslie Dan, Faculty of Pharmacy, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank thanks for the attention on our work. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So, if you could take unlimited vacation, I want to know, how much would you take? Would you take an extra week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, go on that round-the-world trip? Or would you not take anything at all? Because now what happens if you don't take them, usually you lose them. And that is, in some ways, encouraging people to make sure that they take them every year as opposed to letting them stack up and take them out as money, which we'd all love to do, but it's not resting the mind. Uh, unlimited vacation. What are your thoughts on that? Let's bring in Ian, uh, Ian Lee. Ian is, of course, with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing just fine, Scott. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate this. Unlimited vacation, good or bad? Well, you know, it's one of those sort of utopian dreams, I think, that most of us have. And uh, it's, uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, winning a lottery or something like that. And, uh and it's it's lovely and it's it's a it's a nice fantasy and I understand that it can happen in a, a very small number of businesses and circumstances, but I just don't think it'll work most of the time. Imagine me, okay? Class of students come to my class once a week, twice a week. Sometimes it's scheduled, so you know I decide, gee whiz, I just don't feel like going to class this week, so I'll just send them home. Or what about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, nuclear power plant that requires a scheduled minimum number of people on, on a particular shift or on an airplane? And the pilot and the co-pilot, you know, I just don't feel like flying today, you know? <laughs> there's a lot of what I'm trying to say is in many industries, there's many, and businesses, there's many other people depending on you uh, to show up. I, I feel that. You know, I'm in the public sector. I'm completely tenured, can't be fired. I've never missed a class. Uh, there's been, and I've been teaching for 28 years, and let me tell you, there's been days when I really did not feel like going to class at all, at all, at all. But I knew that they were, there were 45 or 50 students there 
depending on me to show up and hand back their grades or pick up their assignments and grade them. And so there's, there's you know, dependencies. And that applies in healthcare. It applies in, you know, the electrical utility industry. It applies in many, many different businesses. And so if you're in one business where you're lucky enough, and I would say that technology industry is one of those industries in tech firms where there's a lot of engineers and uh, where that can possibly go on, you know, Google companies like that, but I, I, I you know, large companies like Google. Um, but I think in most uh, jobs and most industries and most companies, most employers, this is one of those things that's a, uh, a fantasy that uh, the workload and the type of the, the nature of the work just doesn't permit that kind of, uh, let's call it, interchangeability of uh, the workforce. It's interesting. I remember reading something way back in the 80s that said, you know, with technology, we'll only be working four days a week. And that really never happened. What happened was, no, they just dropped the amount of employees they had from two to one, and then you did the extra work. Yeah. So won't yeah. won't we have the same result here? And as you mentioned, there's really only a handful of companies like tech uh, operations where as long as you've got your device, you can crank out sausage. Yeah. And 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 remember, there's 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 a lot of uh, you know again, and, and I'm sure that the uh, the owner of the company would say, well, you know, it's just a question of applying technology. Well, I just ask every listener to think. You've got a child going to grade two or grade six. I don't care what grade, grade ten, and they develop relationships with that uh, student. And are you going to have those teachers becoming interchangeable widgets mm. in the classroom, where your kid has become you know developed a relationship of trust? With that teacher, and you don't know, I'm not showing up this week. I'm just, I'm out of here for two, three weeks. You go deal with the other interchangeable widget called the teacher. Or what about your doctor? You know, you develop a relationship with your doctor, whether it's a heart surgeon or whether it's a knee surgeon or a GP, and you just don't treat your, think of your doctor as an interchangeable widget of labor. You have a relationship with a specific one. I'm my own dentist. And I could go on and on with different uh, occupations. In the cultures that it would work, um, would it help or hurt the culture if some are treating it differently? Like there might be one guy that, oh, yeah, I have no problem with this, man. I'm off for a month. And then another one that says, no, no, I'm not even going to take my vacation. I mean, how would you balance? Because it's, it's theoretically a, separate, a different set of guidelines for each employee. You would think. Um, I, I'm, I can see it, I think, in a technology company. Not that I have worked in a technology company, uh, but I can see it in a technology company because there you're dealing with ideas, you're dealing with technologies, you're dealing with people that are doing programming, and the program is not dependent on you. It doesn't have a relationship. The program is an inanimate object. It's not a human being. Yes, there's other programmers around you, but if you're working as a group uh, often code is written by uh, a team of programmers. So, you know, one team, one team member picks up from somebody else. I can see it happening there. And and I do I do understand, uh, you know, it in that industry, you know, Apple and Google and Microsoft and that sort of thing. But in many other industries, many other jobs, you don't have that, you know, sort of team instance where, where you're interchangeable um, units of labor, albeit very skilled units of labor. You don't have that in teaching. You don't have that in healthcare. You know, you don't have that in medicine. How does it change the psyche of the worker when you give them that responsibility? Instead of, you know, hey, Bill, here's your two weeks every year, and by the way, you got to take it by the end of the year, or we're going to take it from you, so you've got to yeah. make something work, yeah. you got to do something with it. How does it change the psyche of the worker when we put that onus on them? Well, I think, too, that the, uh, and I haven't spoken to this owner, I don't know this owner, but I think that most of us are creatures of habit. And that is to say, I'm not, of course, there's always exceptions. And there's always exceptions. These are not hard and fast rules I'm proposing. I'm just saying that we are creatures of habit. You know, we tend to want to do certain things at certain times of the year. We tend to take our holidays, to, you know, at a certain time. And as we get older, I would suggest that we become more, uh, shall we say, uh, set in our ways and more ingrained hmm. with our habits. And, uh, and uh, it's all very fine when you're 18 to, you know, footloose and fancy free and here today and up and gone tomorrow. And I did that, too, when I was 18, and I did that when I was 22 and 23. But, you know, as we, as we get older, we settle down into routines. And some can say it's really boring, but routines are very helpful and, uh, uh, to organize our lives. 
and they're also comforting to a lot of people. You know, you know that on Monday you're here and Tuesday you're doing something else, or you know, you look forward to your winter holiday every February, that sort of thing. So, although it's it's always trashed and or, or portrayed routines and habits and so forth are always seen as a very quote a very bad thing, I think a lot of people like it. And a lot of, you know, we always practice Christmas hmm. on December the 25th. Now, why are we being so hard-nosed and bureaucratic and rigid? Why don't we have December, Christmas? Why don't we do it sometimes in July? When there's why snow. Not sometimes in September. <laughs> why, not in a, why not in the middle of uh, June, you know what I mean? And uh, why do we do Easter uh, in, in March, you know? I mean, you see my point. There's, you know, it's very fashionable to, to, you know, knock all these sort of things, these habits and routines and structures that we have in our lives, but you know they are very helpful in um, in uh, helping us um, get on with our lives and organize our lives. And again, I'm not faulting those people that do that. I've known engineers in technology firms, and they're uh, here in Ottawa. There's a big tech sector here, and uh, and you know they're very smart people and they're very innovative people. And sometimes they tend to be very um, unconventional types. Mm-hmm. But we can't generalize and say just because a few engineers that work in in a very eclectic environment called a technology company like Google, that we can then extrapolate from that to running a bank or running a hospital or a healthcare clinic or a, a primary school classroom, you know, or, or some or a radio station. Uh, you know, it, it's not. It's really not the same thing. One employer said that it builds trust. How does it build trust? You mean this proposal? Yeah. Um. I'm not sure it does. Uh, what I think it does is it's used as a... Com- I've certainly studied the, um, the unusual human resource practices in the technology companies. They're doing it because it's a very competitive industry, and the firms poach each other all the time. They're rating each other's employees. So what you're trying to do is offer these goodies, these benefits, as incentives to not leave for the employer. Uh, because, again, they're a very competitive industry. Most of us are not in industries that are that competitive. And uh, so they're doing it... Um, yes, they're doing it uh, ostensibly to uh, because they're sensitive people, but I think that the real reason they're doing it is because they're trying to create a competitive advantage of their firm to keep their employees. So it's very self-interested. There's nothing wrong with being self-interested. All human beings are self-interested. I'm self-interested, uh, but I, I think that they're doing it for that reason, and nothing wrong with that. They they want to keep their employees. They want to keep their good employees, and so they offer them unusual perks and benefits that are not available uh, in other firms uh, to other people. What about, uh, is this really, Ian, just not flex hours? I mean, when you think about yeah. it, it's all part of it, and, and you yeah. know, this is one of those sort of bow ties that stands out uh, from yeah. the rest because, wow, unlimited, whatever. But yeah. really what it does is you get your work done, you can come in at this time, that time, yeah. whenever. It's, a, it's sort of a, the, uh, the ultimate um, uh, extension of flex hours. I mean, it's sort of the logical yeah. extension when you say, let's take it to the nth degree, the ultimate limit. What, well, here it is. And, and I, would, I would bet you anything that if, you, if I could do a, a research experiment as a professor and I had good enough data, meaning a fair amount of data to compare several companies doing it for a fair period of time, I would predict that after a while those employees would settle into their own routines uh, because we are creatures of habit. Yeah. You know, we don't just eat sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, maybe if you're 18 and you're drunk. But, you know, most of us, as we get older, you know, you get up in the morning and you shower and you brush yeah. your teeth and you get changed and put your clothes on and you Do go the to routine, work. And, yeah. and we settle into routines because if we weren't in routines, our lives would be so disrupted all the time, it would be very, very confusing. Ian I mean, Lee has been with us. i got to let you go there, Ian. Yeah. Ian Lee was with us at Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about unlimited vacation. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Uh, really quickly, let's bring in Jack here. Jack, what are your thoughts? Uh, unlimited well, vacation, how long would you well, take? Well, well Jack, Jack actually knows who Vigilant are. Jack actually knows that they derive most of their income from the Muskrat Falls, you've heard about it lately, the Inu protesting up in Labrador. And so basically, you know, with all due respect to Mr. Lee, this is not a technology company. This is a bunch of engineers profiteering at the taxpayer's expense. That project in Newfoundland is approximately $5 billion over. They're in front of the Liberals today looking for more financing in a couple of years later. We're talking about vacations here. Well, I know, but, but the whole discussion 
was around Terry Hussey, who owns Vigilant. So All right, I'm going to leave you there, because we've got Terry on the line, so we'd rather uh, talk to, to him about all of this stuff. Uh, how successful is Unlimited Vacation? Terry Hussey is with us, CEO of Vigilant uh, uh, Management in Paradise, Newfoundland, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Terry. How are you today? I am well, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, Unlimited Vacation, you've certainly got a lot of press out of this. Is it good? Is it bad? How did you come up with this? Well, um, before I dive into that, I'd just like to say that uh, the majority of our income has nothing to do with the Muskrat Falls project, Uh, so previous caller maybe should check his facts before he calls into the radio. Anyways, moving on. Uh, Unlimited Vacation kind of was birthed out of my idea of how I wanted to run a business. I had worked in consulting before, and of course, consulting is hourly rates, you know, on the clock, butts and chairs, that kind of thing. And it just always seemed really silly to me in that if I got a task done quickly, there was no incentive. You know, if I had a certain amount of work that was expected of me in a week, and I got it done, I just had to sit there and Hmm. wait for five o'clock to go home. And that was the root of the frustration. And then when we started our company, uh, you know, it, it was originally... You know, if you want to go to the gym in the middle of the day, do it. Uh, and we'll count it as company time because we want people to be healthy. And that expanded to, well, if you've got errands to run, you know, go run your errands. We trust you to get your work done. And then before long, we kind of realized, you know, what is the sense of tracking people's sick time and the vacation that they take? If they're getting their jobs done and the projects are being done successfully, what do we care how they do their work or where they do it? And that's sort of what it evolves from. It didn't start out as this calculated uh, idea of, you know, let's just let people run wild and see how it goes. We we kind of evolved into it, and now that I'm doing it, uh, I can't imagine running a business in a different way. And in fact, if I had to change it and go back to running things like most traditional consulting companies were, I think I would rather not operate the business. I'd shut it down. It, it, it wouldn't make me feel good. So this started, and we talked about this uh, with Ian Lee from Sprott School of Business, this started as a flex hour program and then just kind of graduated to what it is. It did, yeah. And and the ironic part is that it didn't start out with any productivity goals in mind. It was more of a, you know, what's the right way to treat our team, our, our staff? And in and, and, and business and, and Newfoundland and Labrador, especially the business class, the old merchant class, there's a real attitude of you're lucky to have a job and you exist essentially to help the owners make money. And I always found that to be a little bit distasteful. And so we wanted to treat people a little better because, you know, we can't really do what we do without our team. So it it seemed like an equitable way. If they work hard for us, we should allow them to to live sensible lives and have a bit of flexibility in how they do that. Uh, And it's worked out very well. Ironically, I actually think people are more productive, even if they work less hours. I think they produce more work in the run of a year. How do you balance this between employees? And do you see another industry where this would work or, or other industries where it can work uh, as opposed to others similar to yours or anything where you can do as long as you've got a device in front of you? Uh, are there some that take advantage of it uh, that have more holidays than others? Do you find that? I mean, do you have to apply different guidelines for different people? Uh, well, no, actually. And it's one of those things where if we have to try and you know put different tiers or different uh, levels of, of use, or we even debated, you know, maybe in the first six months when people are on probation, we wouldn't allow them access to it. But I actually want it to be there, and I want it to tempt people. I want someone who's going to be tempted to take advantage of it. I want them to take advantage of it, because very quickly we'll realize that somebody's not getting their work done, hmm. and that's a whole different conversation. It's kind of a self-correcting engine once everybody buys into it. But the trick is you kind of got to take the old politicking you know, currying favor, trying to climb the corporate ladder, that's got to be out of your company culture uh, so that when somebody comes in and starts acting that way, everybody else sort of says, you know, this person's they're not getting their job done. And like we're relying on them for X, Y or Z and they're not getting it done. And now we're all about outcomes at at Vigilant. And most of these, you know, companies that take on these policies have to be about outcomes because otherwise it's just anarchy. And Uh, so we haven't had any issues uh, with people taking advantage. And in fact, the biggest challenge is getting people to take the take the vacation because they enjoy their work so much. It doesn't feel like work. That's my next uh, uh, question is, do you find people taking less vacation as a result of this? Sometimes. And when you recruit people the way that we do, you tend to find people who, I mean, we're very purpose-driven at Vigilant. We're trying to sort of correct an inefficient industry in Newfoundland and Labrador, which, of course, is the construction sector. And so these people are very passionate about what they do. They believe in the mission of the company what we're trying to achieve both in the construction sector and what we're trying to prove about how to run a business. 
So they tend to really enjoy coming to work. It's a very happy place. There's a lot of laughter and camaraderie and friendship at the office. Uh, But it's important to remind people that, you know, this is there to be used. So one thing that I do as CEO, generally most, most, most days I'll go in the work in the morning and at lunchtime I'll go home uh, because I tend to work. I mean, oh my God, from five to 10, most evenings I'm working. So if I go in there and work all day long, uh, I'll burn out first of all, but the staff will never see me taking advantage of this policy. So three or four days of the week, I'm not at the office in the afternoons. And part of that is so the staff can see that it's okay to do this. And I encourage them regularly to, to take advantage of this. Uh, and it helps. Uh, after a couple of months, the first few months, there's a real transition. People are asking me permission if they can leave the office. I've got to run an errand. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. And after three or four months of me essentially making fun of them for asking permission, <laughs> they eventually realize I'm serious and this isn't a test. And you can come and go as you please so long as you get your job done. And once they get there, it's remarkable. It's like this huge burden falls off their shoulders. And suddenly they just worry about getting their job done. And it's just such a huge quality of life improvement for them and then everybody that knows them. They just see an improvement in these people. How important is it for your employees to see this culture in your behavior? And by that, I mean, I, I can draw a comparison to uh, maternity leave for the husband or, or the male. If he wants to take time off during a pregnancy, uh, now allowed to do that uh, by law, theoretically. But again, many companies may look at that and go, well, you're, on a, you're not taking the job seriously enough if you're, uh, you're going to do that. Uh, so this really has to be something where people buy in from the top down. Yeah, it has to be, and it has to be something that the executives push down and, and make sure that it's not just lip service being paid. There are a lot of companies that that sort of purport to have these progressive cultures, but then they're all working 75 hours a week, and mm-hmm. if you, you leave the office at 5 o'clock, you know, there's sideways glances and, and scorn being thrown at you. Uh, the paternity leave, paternity leave example is really great, and one thing we did in our research was we found that uh, a lot of the more progressive companies in Canada, they'll, they'll, have a, they'll distinct between the primary caregiver and then the secondary caregiver. So if, like, let's say it's a, a gay couple who have a baby and one of them stays home with the baby as the primary caregiver, well, then they're entitled to the full maternity leave. But the secondary caregiver or in a biological couple, let's say, let's say a, a, the, the birth father, they should take that first month off uh, because that's so vital. Uh, it's such a huge transition and, in effect, you know, taking even four weeks off with pay will make it a world of a difference in a new in a new parent's life, and so we try to accommodate all of that. Uh, and again, it just has to be across the whole spectrum of HR. Unlimited vacation is just one part of it, but ultimately, it's about how do you treat your people? Do you view them as engines to drive profit for your company, or do you view them as partners in something you're trying to achieve together and thus treat them with a little bit more respect and kindness, which is sort of where we're coming from. Can this be done in most companies or just a select few where the option is there? And by that, I mean, it's just easy to do uh, regarding your device. Like you said, you can pack up, go home, do your work from there. So I think, uh, you know, tech sector is an obvious one. That's where it kind of got birth. I'm in construction, in consulting, and we don't do lump sum billings, so all of our stuff is hourly rate or hourly rate. So if we work five out five minutes, we get paid for five minutes work, much like a law office. And we're making a work in construction. I understand that there are some fields where there's level uh, levels of service, you know, like medicine, you know, police services, fire, etc. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can't do unlimited vacation, but I'm sure that there are elements of this that can be brought in. And ultimately, the theme of treating people as more than just an engine to make to create profit for the owners. Uh, that's something that really needs to catch on in Canadian business because as you look at the under 40 crowd that are coming up through, they don't want to work just for a wage. They're not accepting of that anymore. They want to feel like they're a part of something. They want to feel respected. They want to feel valued. And the companies who find a way to do this will have an enormous advantage in the marketplace. And then over time, they will be more successful because they'll recruit and retain better people and they'll have better outcomes. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of a self-correcting engine, the, the free market. And the companies who stick to the old ways, they're only going to be able to create, let's say, less qualified or less great candidates. And I think their performances are going to suffer as, as a result of it. Terry Hussey's been with us, CEO of Vigilant Management in Paradise, Newfoundland. Successful companies, uh, or at least a lot of the high te- uh, tech companies, are moving towards unlimited vacation. Terry, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.